0: This is Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a series-based podcast focusing on surgical and medical education and featuring expert interviews and practice-changing discussion. Our host is Dr. Kara King, a member of the Cleveland Clinic's section of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery. Dr. King is also the director of Benign Gynecologic Surgery and associate program director of the Cleveland Clinic's MIGS Fellowship. This podcast is a collaboration between MD Edge and and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons. We'll be right back after this message. This podcast is made possible by Boston Scientific. To learn more about Boston Scientific, please visit bostonscientific.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the featured clinicians and do not necessarily reflect the views of Boston Scientific.
1: Welcome back to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, part two of our interview with Nancy Peterson, founder of Nancy's Nook. If you missed part one, make sure you check it out as Nancy describes her personal history of endometriosis and how Nancy's Nook took shape. In this episode, we will discuss the complexity of resident training, role of imaging in endometriosis management, as well as the power of patient education endometriosis is such a complex disease, both you know, pathophysiology-wise as well as how to manage it surgically, it is so complex that current OB-GYN residents have so much to learn in their four years, it's close to impossible to get into the you know, depth and breadth of what you need to know to handle endometriosis correctly. Right. And yeah, so, I agree with you
0: completely. They don't come out of their residencies prepared to treat endometriosis effectively because they haven't been exposed to everything they need to know. Right. I, I don't really know enough about the MIGS programs or the the fellowships, but I've often wondered if there was a way to insert an endometriosis specific module of information into that program. You know, what's it look like? Where is it found? How does it change over time? what's the true symptom profile, what kind of team do you need to deal with it well. Even if it was just an introduction, I think it would begin to cut down on the number of cases where we say you don't have the disease because I didn't learn about any of that stuff. There's a group going on, and I'm sorry, I'm so busy anymore, I can't keep track of all of it, but they're posting on Twitter, and one of the physicians, I want to say Leonardi, posted that he is now recommending that all patients in the evaluation and treatment of endometriosis not only have their surgery, but we need to be using ultrasound more effectively on everybody. And I wrote back, I would just love to see that. We're losing kidneys to this disease. It's a benign disease, so to speak, at least. You know, I mean, it's rare that it causes somebody's life or converts to cancer by no, rarely it can. But, you know, just last year, I think we identified about 18 patients that lost kidneys, two of whom lost both kidneys and are on dialysis waiting for transplant. You know, maybe his idea of being sure everybody has an ultrasound, we're going to pick up enlarging kidneys maybe earlier before we're losing them. Even if that team can't manage the ureter being bogged down, they can get stents into it and not lose the kidney. So, I was really encouraged to see him actively asserting that we should be using more ultrasound in
1: patients. Imaging in general, I absolutely agree with you, Nancy, and that a well trained sonographer for ultrasound can pick up really subtle signs of endometriosis that's what i hear when
0: i was in the clinical area we didn't see much of that in fact dr redmine was down in radiology teaching the radiologist what endometriosis the nodules look like on the bowel but we never i never had any exposure to finding subtle disease i'm still saying i'm not sure all subtle disease can be found because of my history you know and yet i know they're getting much better much better
1: they're getting better, exactly. Sonographers are getting better, and um, we do a lot of MRIs here at the Cleveland Clinic right now because our radiologists have been especially trained in how to pick up some of these other signs of endometriosis, which can really help with pre-op planning too, right? Making sure that you have the right team involved. and and all of that. So I agree, it's, it's really important. And you're also pointing out the importance of finding a surgeon that has high volume, right? You want to find a surgeon who does this all of the time, every single day.
0: Yes, uh, we encourage that as part of our teaching is you need to be with the team who, who do a lot of these surgeries. I, you know, I teach them, it doesn't matter, you know, they've been through a MIGS program, maybe they worked with a, a program that does a lot of excision. But now the real learning comes, as you start doing a lot of surgeries, you're gonna teach yourself. Uh, Ricardo Peraria in Brazil, years ago he came to a meeting with Dr. Redwine and he he was listening to what he heard and he ended up buying a a section of slides and some videos and he went back to Brazil and a couple years later he came back and he said to Dr. Redwine, can we talk a few minutes and he started showing Dr. Redwine his videos and Dr. Redwine was going, whoa, that is really good stuff, where did you learn that? I taught myself, there are not too many people that can teach themselves But if there's interest and a desire to learn more about it, it's as complex as brain surgery, in my view. And it takes as much training and as much experience on the job to get really good at it. And so we teach patients that. This is not something that somebody can walk in, brand new out of a residency, and remove DIE from deeply infiltrating endometriosis from the pelvis. It's going to require a bit more than that little amount of training.
1: Yeah, and endometriosis is going to have that iceberg effect, just like you said, where it may not look like very much of anything, but when you start excising it, it's actually quite infiltrative and deep. So you're exactly right. It takes some extra training.
0: And they need to be prepared for it before they go to surgery. So your idea about the ultrasounds and getting better at that and then having a crew available to you, if not in the OR with you, we've had patients say, well, my doctor... Who is not somebody trained in endometriosis? Said he found some endometriosis about, so he sent me off to a colorectal surgeon. I kind of discourage that. I think the colorectal surgeon should be part of the endometriosis team. The gynecologist needs to be there, needs to help identify disease, help. You know, it's the same thing like when they're going into the chest. You know, it'd be all right if the gynecologist is there looking at those lesions that the thoracic surgeon's going to deal with it makes the whole team stronger. When they work together like that, it seems like everybody learns much faster.
1: I absolutely agree that endometriosis is the disease that gynecologists need to own. And even though we may not be able to do exactly what you said, a big diaphragmatic excision or a big bowel resection, I absolutely agree that we should be running the team that does that. Absolutely. Because we know what it looks like. We know what margins you need. We know all those details. So I agree. We should definitely be owning that.
0: Recently, I've begun to notice that where they're not working with teams, we're seeing a lot of ostomies. And I kind of come from Redwine's program where he and Dean Sharp, I think, maybe did four or 500 bowel cases. I can't give you the exact number. And there was only one colostomy done in that whole group, and that was Dean was gone, somebody else was helping, and there was an accidental injury that required a, a colostomy. So I think there's room for education there, too. Do we really need to be doing colostomies on all these bowel lesions or you know, can we, with a little more careful, either emptying the bowel or not emptying the bowel. I know there's two theories on that now, but it's still possible to take a segment without necessarily doing a colostomy. Right.
1: I'm impressed with your knowledge, Nancy, you're nailing it.
0: Well, you know, that was one (laughs) thing that I did when I was working. I read absolutely, well, first of all, I interviewed every patient before they ever came, you know, then when they came, uh, you know, had a chance to talk with them about their symptoms, and so I listened to symptoms forever. I read every single comprehensive history and physical that Red Wine did, and he was very comprehensive. I read every pathology report, I read every OR report. And so that was kind of my learning. I didn't work for him, I worked for the hospital, and it didn't take very long for them to dedicate me completely to the program. So I had the time to do that. And then we have a number of wonderful surgeons in Nancy's Nook, who help us with learning, I just posted something yesterday and said, Please don't respond to this. Is it just for the surgeons to respond to? I wanted to know about how many of them felt we needed to be suppressing disease before we did the surgery. Do we really need to put all these patients on Lupron or whatever? What are your, and I don't know, maybe a dozen of them responded and shared their individual views on it. And most of them were on the same page, but there was a little bit of differences. And they talked them through, and the patients got to watch that discussion without getting into it. And it helps the patients understand that endometriosis care is not a nailed-down science. There are a lot of theories out there. There's a lot of belief systems of how you should approach it. And when you take a, a dozen or so good surgeons discussing the differences in how they approach it, it's helpful for patients to understand, oh, gee, you know, there isn't one right way maybe. When I asked, I told the administrators that you wanted to do this interview, and I said, you know, what's the one thing that we're doing that's of more value than anything else? And to a person, the response was around the idea that educated patients make better decisions, they advocate for themselves, they grow strength from watching everybody else advocate for themselves. And we're kind of careful when a patient comes back and gives us a report about their experience. We try to thank them for doing their own research and then making a plan and moving forward. Because so many of them feel stuck. You know, look, I've been through seven surgeries, I've been through 10 surgeries. What was the skill level you were working with? Okay, and we look at that, that person hasn't been specifically trained in endo, so maybe it's worth at least getting a consult so you can learn more about the disease, begin to make a plan that's going to be more effective. So that was, you know, I guess the administrators were kind of thinking the same thing that I was, that it is worth teaching patients to understand the disease in any way possible and then to start advocating for themselves.
1: It gives them power when they have felt so powerless for so many years that, you know, it's funny, I have patients come in and they'll tell me, you know, I'm a Nancy Nook patient. And as soon as I hear that someone's a Nancy Nook patient, I'm like, oh, all right, you're going to have a really high working knowledge on the disease process. Well, good. and their question- they're coming pretty well prepared. They are. And their questions for me are dead on, right? They're asking me very, very good questions, like, what is your surgical volume? And what do you do if you find bowel disease? And what does your team look like? And it just makes me so proud that they're coming with confidence and asking me these questions without being embarrassed of it. You know, some people come in and they are embarrassed and they apologize. I'm so sorry to ask about your numbers. And, and we say, that should be the first question you ask your surgeon. Don't be embarrassed about that. You know, like this is somebody who is going to be operating on you. You should have the power and the confidence to ask those questions. So I appreciate you giving these patients um, the confidence to well, come to the doctor. we appreciate with those you type of and, questions. and the other
0: physicians who have entrusted us to teach these patients and who interact with us as almost as colleagues that are willing to help us teach patients, are willing to take referrals from us. I know that it's hard for a lot of physicians to think something of value can come off the internet, you know? I mean, they'll just tell patients, hang up that computer, you know, put your phone away or whatever. Be cautious. But, yeah, yeah, right. Really, I mean, you know, but what has happened with this group is that we have tried to keep our information as fact-based as possible. You know, it's not it's not real easy in endometriosis because there's a lot of loose ends, But we try to keep them on track with good information as best we can. And I think that gradually the physicians have come to understand that we're not out there spewing stuff. We don't allow a lot of discussion, which is one of the big criticisms that we get. But we try to let people know this is not a discussion board. This is an education library. You get to educate yourself so you can make better decisions. If you want support, find another group because... What happens when you start doing support is all kinds of misinformation gets out there. And we have 45,000 posts a month. We try to make sure everything that gets posted is accurate. We can't do that. So you don't get to talk. (laughs) You can tell us (laughs) us about your your consult. You can tell us about your surgery. You can tell us about your original history when you're asking for what do I do and we'll direct you, but we don't get to have a lot of back and forth because there's too much misinformation.
1: So, And I love that. I mean, you are like a all business, no BS, you know, type of moderator. And, and I, and I appreciate that. But that's the only way to keep the truth on your site, right? When you have 80,000 members, you can't yeah. handle an, an 80,000
0: member group any other way. And it's so frustrating for some of the patients and we're sensitive to that. But, you know, many of our administrators are in school, they've got families, they've got full-time jobs. There's only a couple of us that are not working, and which is one of the reasons I do a lot of the answering of questions. And when the others have time, they step up and take it on, you know. But as things are now, it takes me about eight hours a day. It's a good thing I don't sleep well because at night i don't have anything else to do
1: (laughs) my goodness that is so much dedication i am so it's not dedication
0: i gotta tell you it's not dedication it's poor sleep (laughs) it's to keep from feeling sorry for myself and my thoracic spines acting up so
1: so it keeps me busy (laughs) it's a win-win it's a win-win yeah Absolutely. So, how many moderators do you have now? Did we you say have over 15? Um, three
0: moderators and twelve what we call administrators. The moderators do things like just help keep the chats on on track. The administrators help with decision making and with reviewing articles that come in and with policy for the board. You know, we often get physicians offering to help us financially cover expenses. And we don't like to do that because uh, of the concerns about conflict of interest. And that one time somebody accused us of uh, accepting funds for referrals. And it, it was kind of particularly uh, offensive because here I've got a total of 15 people donating all kinds of time and somebody's accusing them of being on the take. But uh, anyway, they help with those kinds of policy decisions and and review of cases, and a lot of times we get questions about how physicians are selected, and, you know, there's a big misunderstanding out there that we're trying to, in some way, evaluate the physician's effectiveness, and we don't do that. We get referrals from patients who say, look, I had this surgery two years ago, and I've been pain-free ever since. And he does excision or she does excision, and they don't push drugs, and they didn't tell me to go get pregnant, and they didn't call me and tell me I was neurotic. And so then generally I will contact that physician and say, you know, you've had some patients contact us talking about your work, and it was really very positive, and I'm wondering if we might talk a little more about Nancy's nook. And I have a letter that I send out that sort of explains what our patient population is like, that a lot of them have multiple pelvic pain generators, and most of them have multiple treatment failures. And so we're looking for physicians who may be willing to approach these cases with a team approach, you know, looking at bowel, lung, diaphragm, bladder, bowel, all that. And then look at referring them or treating the other pelvic pain generators. So we're kind of looking for a complete package. And that's how they get selected. You know, patients recommend them. We talk. Are your skills and interests? compatible with this group of very difficult patients. I kid you not, they're difficult. They've
1: got all kinds of failures. (laughs) Absolutely. I can vouch for that. Yeah, I'm sure
0: you can. I'm sure you can. (laughs) They just, uh, they've been through everything. And in many cases, they're in a state of despair. You know, they have lost all hope. And so then when we send them out and they're going, I don't know, I don't know. And then they come back with Whoa, they listened. They believe me. I'm going to have surgery. And then they'll come back and tell us how it went. And we have seen some amazing pregnancies that just simply never were going to happen the way they were. And I know a lot of physicians, and particularly in the reproductive endocrinology group, just don't believe that we should be in there operating before they get pregnant. But, you know, sometimes that's all they need is the inflammation and the disease removed. Plus, some of the patients with D.I.E., we've seen some ruptured bowels as the pregnancy has grown and heavy adhesion to the bowel as the pregnancy expands, the bowel didn't hold up. So we do teach patients we think that's the best route. You have to talk it over with your doctor and decide what you want to do, but that's our recommendation. But I have babies all over the world now. I couldn't get pregnant myself, but I got babies everywhere. And my <laughs> oldest babies are in Toronto, and they're, I think, 26, 27, and 30. Oh, my goodness. All in the you same family. You prolific in
1: other ways. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. I have, I have some wonderful friends in Canada that, who uh, looked after me as I traveled there. We'll be right back after this message. Today's episode is brought to you by MedJobNetwork.com. Ready to start your career in your dream location? Looking to expand your skills in a dynamic new practice setting? Start your search today at MedJobNetwork.com. MedJobNetwork.com sorts thousands of physician job opportunities in every specialty and all 50 states. Visit us once, create a profile, then let our technology bring the right jobs to you. There's no need to search again and again. Medjobnetwork.com does all the work for you. It's time to take that next step. There's a great new career opportunity waiting for you at Medjobnetwork.com. Patients have taught me everything I know about this disease, you know. I'm still And you've been on
1: both sides of it. You've been a patient yourself, right? So, I mean, you see all aspects of this disease from, from both sides.
0: I was 28 when I was diagnosed. But I had multiple episodes of ruptured cysts in, in the emergency room or in the hospital with a blown abdomen. And I didn't have an appendix anymore, so they're going, well, we're not going to open you up. You're just going to have to wait it out. And so they would monitor me and keep me MPO, and then when it would get better, they would send me home. So all of those years, years of pain, I, I have a deep appreciation for what these patients are going through, and so do all of my administrators and moderators. They all know. and Very supportive group.
1: Unfortunately, I mean, you had your your uterus out, tubes, and ovaries in your mid 20s, right? You were young. 28
0: years old. I just said. Get it. Well, by that point, I was living with a hemoglobin between seven and nine. Uh, from, I also had adenomyosis and severe bleeding and clots, you know, the whole story. Um, and I was trying to hang on to a career, you know, but I was so sick all the time. I said, just take it. I don't care. If I get married and, and decide to have a family, I will adopt.
1: I, I just can't imagine. I, you are just a remarkable woman, Nancy. Well, sure. thank
0: you for that. We I, appreciate you. You know, you just kind yes. of stumble along and do the best you can, and and sometimes it becomes a win. You know, I mean, you just don't know. I, mean, I didn't know I was going to end up doing endometriosis. I was. It started out as a neuro nurse, and when I first came to Bend, they had just brought two neurosurgeons in, and so I was helping with a lot of that. And then you know, bedside care got to be too much, physically because of my back and my legs so I went on to being a supervisor and stumbled into red wine one night
1: it's just a wild story I know a wild story to run into Dr. Redwine in the cafeteria yeah yeah really so I have one final question for you to conclude our interview I'm curious with with all of your experience if you could give one piece of advice to physicians who treat endometriosis what would be your one piece of advice to us
0: you're talking about physicians who know about endometriosis. Yeah. You know, I I don't know that I have much advice for you all because most of the things patients need, you're already doing. If you're part of a skilled team, you're listening. And that's the very first thing that patients need. And to a person, they speak to it when they come back after a consult with one of the Nook physicians and they want to write that consult up, the first thing they say is, you know what, they listened. And so I think continuing to listen and to validate their concerns that, yeah, no, things weren't handled very well up to this point and we're going to change directions. But I think listening is the most powerful thing you can do for this group of patients. As I said, it's real common for them to end up in tears before the interview's over because somebody listened. When they're done, they may ask you to say a lot of things, and that's fine. Do that. But don't go in with your dukes up and your anger of 20 years of mistreatment on your shoulder. Don't do that. Go in prepared to listen. And at the end of your interview, if all your questions haven't been answered, then ask them. But listen, take somebody with you. This is going to be a different kind of consult than you've ever had. These people are knowledgeable about endometriosis. They know that it takes a lot of years to get to diagnosis. So that, I try to teach patients to to be prepared to listen and to not go in aggressively, leave your anger at the door, let the doctor help you figure out what you need to do. Uh, Most of the Nook doctors are very good at that, and we appreciate you all very much because it is validating for these patients. In fact, like I say, almost to a person, when they come back to talk about their consults, that's what they say, that they listen, I was heard, somebody believed me, Uh, you know, yeah, my bowel hurts, it could be endometriosis, yeah, that pain in my chest could be endometriosis of the diaphragm. So I think what you're doing as a group of skilled endometriosis care providers is listening and continuing to do that, I, I think. And continue to mentor others as you have. I see you all teaching, and I point that out to our members a lot, that that you are teaching others. And, you know, we've got 8 million patients in this country and maybe 200 doctors that I've identified so far. I mean, I know there's more out there, but I haven't figured out where they are. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, there's a huge demand. I think that's the thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I was just going to talk about what you said about training more providers, and you're exactly right. I think as more providers are trained, meaning minimally invasive GYN surgeons as well as some REI fellowships are very surgically heavy as well, we are starting to permeate into different residency programs and then teaching the residents. And just like you spoke about earlier about could we do these little like mini webinars or mini educational topics for our residents just so they know that even if they're not trained to do the correct surgery, they know that what the correct surgery should be and and refer to the right providers. So I think slowly but surely we're permeating into these different. We seem to be seeing
0: more multi-specialty treatment centers starting to crop up. I think that there's a lot of power in that. Again, some of the physicians who first started with us who were a little hesitant as they've added consultants to help them with their team they're getting really excited I mean there's good feedback when a patient gets their life back and they write you a letter you go oh my god I did something wonderful you know It's just like me having babies all over the country, you know. Wonderful. (laughs) I'm glad.
1: It's so true. But you're right. Like, we had our meeting here this morning, our multidisciplinary meeting this morning, right? We have a radiologist at the table. We have an anesthesia pain doc at the table. We have our gynecologist. We have our colorectal surgeon, right? We have our urologist. And... It just brings such just such rich discussion, right? Review the MRI, compare it to our surgical images, just continue to push yourselves to get better. It makes such a big difference, and it gains momentum. It's awesome.
0: Yeah, I see that feedback loop is really important. You know, it's just like the doctors in, in Thunder Bay never got any feedback that the, what they were doing didn't work, and they went away thinking they were curing the disease. What a powerful misstatement. I mean, incomplete loop. We encourage patients now to try to close that loop and to do it without rancor and without anger, just close the loop, you know, help previous doctors understand that your life has improved and why, you know. So. Right. No, I love it.
1: Well, Nancy, I can't thank you enough for your time tonight. I appreciate your insight. I appreciate your advocacy. You're doing really tremendous work for our patients out there. So thank you. And that's all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next episode for more expert insights and perspectives. From all of us at MD Edge and the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening.